Well, hey, good to see you all. Um, it's a good week. We're starting a new series. Hey, uh, as you can see, one of the things that we want to do here is give you opportunities, take another step. Uh, that's what it's all about. So I'd encourage you to listen to Holy Spirit, take those steps as, as God prompts you that direction, as you see an opportunity. Uh, don't let anything stop you. Hey, uh, we're, you know, I, I started off my ministry life as a youth pastor. And as a youth pastor, uh, we talk about almost anything with young people that was relevant to their life, all right? Didn't shy away from anything. And so um, now I'm a senior pastor, but I still have the same approach. And so um, this, this month, we're, we're going to go through a series called Culture Shock. <clears throat> and you might be a little shocked sometimes about what we're talking about, but here's my conviction. It's that the Word of God actually speaks to almost everything that we deal with in our lives. Really does. It's not just a, a Sunday school book uh, of kids' stories, all right? I saw a young man this week on a video, and I don't know, he was talking to a group of probably young people, college-age students or whatever, and, and he was going, hey, listen, you know, uh, he told him all these statistics about the numbers of, of uh, animal life on the planet, right? And he got in these huge, huge numbers, and he said, you know, and then he puts up a picture on a screen of a storybook, a kid's storybook of the story of Noah. And he said, all these statistics, all this massive population and numbers of animals and creatures, I mean, that's why I quit believing in this story of Noah when I was eight years old. And everybody kind of laughed, and he's like, yeah, this, see, this is just a silly kid's book. And I thought, oh, you know, as they say in the South, I lived in the South uh, for a while, you say, you say something like this, you go, bless their little heart, you know? Bless his little heart. I mean, I'm sorry that you reached eight years old and you never went beyond that in your understanding of the Bible. Because the Bible, uh, I hope you guys know this, but the Bible isn't a kid's storybook, all right? We teach kids the Bible in Sunday school, and for a lot of people, that's all they ever get. As they get out of Sunday school and they move on and leave it. But the truth is, the Bible was written by adults, okay? And it's a deep, profound book full of a lot of truth and a lot of information about life. And so we really do need to move beyond a Sunday school, kids' Sunday school understanding. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't. But today, we're going to engage a topic that might make you a little nervous, but it's going to require, hopefully not too bad, but it's going to require that we go a little, to a little deeper level as we study the Bible. Today I want to look at, in this series, Culture Shock, what does the Bible teach you about politics? Woohoo! Politics. Hey, <clears throat> I know we all love talking about politics, right? There's two things you're supposed to stay away from, religion and politics. Well, we talk about religion in here, right? Why not talk about politics? But some people do get nervous. You know, it's kind of like the older gentleman who was out in the park one Sunday enjoying a sunny day, soaking up the warm uh, sun, and man, he was just feeling good. And all of a sudden, another gentleman, a little bit older, came and sat up uh, across from him. And they just kind of looked at each other for a minute and stared into each other's eyes, and it was a little awkward for a minute. Nobody said anything. And all of a sudden, one of them kind of breathed a big, took a big breath and sighed, you know. And the other guy stood up and said, if you're going to talk about politics, I'm out of here. That was pretty good. Come on. We, we can be a little sensitive, right? Okay, the truth is uh, that Plato said the penalty for good men, paying, uh, good men pay for not being interested in politics is to be governed by men worse than themselves. <laughs> uh, the problem is if we don't take an interest in it, if we don't look at it in the church, well, then what are we going to do? Where are we going to get... God's direction towards this area of our life. And listen, politics plays a big role in our lives. 
uh, there's a lot that's going to be imposed on you and is imposed on you by politic. And by politic, I just mean governance. I mean governance. And so uh, we have a lot of pressures in our culture right now to move in directions with politics that are, quite frankly, not out of Scripture and in opposition to what God would teach us in the Bible. And so, man, I think it's pretty important that we look a little deeper, maybe a little more nuanced study today about what the Bible does say about politics and governance, but it does speak to it. It does speak to it. One of the things that's required in all this is that we gain and move towards what's called a biblical worldview. And your worldview, as you know, probably is just the lens. It's like the glasses you put on and you look at life through. And it's how you interpret things. It's how you translate what's happening around you. It's how you decide what to think and believe. And so uh, when we're younger, sometimes we don't realize that we're being given or we're building a worldview. In other words, how do we discover truth? What do we believe about things? And so when we come to Christ, uh, what we discover is that Jesus says to us, you need to set aside everything. We see this in the Apostle Paul and others. Set everything aside that you knew before, okay? And now learn to and come and sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him what is true and what to think, okay? And so it's a challenge throughout the years when Christianity's gone into a new culture and presented the gospel. What we've seen is uh, some cultures will accept parts of Christianity. They'll accept part of what Jesus had to say, right? They'll add him to the pantheon of gods, but they won't exclusively leave everything from their past and follow him. And frankly, I've seen that over the last few years as I interact with people and I am sharing the gospel with people and trying to uh, help lead them into a relationship with Jesus. They'll say, well, well, wait a minute, what do I have to give up? I mean, do I have to give up this belief and this ideal? You know, do I have to, do I have to believe certain things? And they're kind of evaluating, critiquing, right? And I go, well, hold on. Uh, yes, you got to give up everything. <laughs> That's reality. But what you're giving it up for is to find life and truth, real life and real truth. And so we have to grapple with this. We can be guilty of it in our culture of syncretism, which is what it's called, to add Jesus to the areas we like what he has to say, and then uh, not so much in these areas that we don't like or feel good about, make us feel uncomfortable. So today's topic, uh, again, might make some of you uncomfortable, but my hope is in prayer, as I've prayed over this, that it will help you to understand that the Bible does speak to our lives, to really everything in our lives, and that this area is something very important that we should care about. And as Christians, sometimes we shy away from, but really we should engage. And so what I'm proposing today, like I sit with young couples before I do premarital counseling with them, when I do that, I say, hey, listen, what we're going to do is look at what the Bible says about marriage, and we're going to embrace that. We're looking for what God's truth is. And so that's really what I want to do today. Hey, Romans chapter 13 is where we want to start off as we dig into the scriptures. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And if you have a Bible, turn there. If you're on your app on your phone, and it'll be up on the screen too. But this is a rather, uh, not super lengthy, but it, it's the Apostle Paul, as he's writing the scriptures, he uh, reveals to us a bit about our perspective as Christians towards governance or towards uh, uh, our government. And so he gives a lot here. Now, uh, just a reminder that when we read the scriptures, we believe they're the word of God. They're authoritative, right? That's why we build our worldview from what the scriptures say is because we don't think they're just the words of a human being, though men wrote them, but we know that, uh, that God breathed through these authors. And so it is uh, God's words for us. And so Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 13, starting in verse one, this is what it says. 
Everyone must submit to uh, governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you do wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, again, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid, for they are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So what we learn here is that God is really the one who has established uh, governance. Okay, it comes from him. We know uh, very simply in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was starting off, he gave the law, right? The Ten Commandments. That was a law that was establishing a moral code, but beyond that, even a governance. And of course, Moses... Uh, extended that out uh, and really to incorporate much of their lives and give them direction as to how to live for God. And so uh, this does come from God. The Bible says government is established by God and our perspective and our attitude towards government should be one of submission to the authority, to be in obedience to what is right. They are, government is, been put in place to be a deterrent against evil, to slow down the effects of evil and to keep us accountable to what is right Now, when we study the Bible, we use a method called uh, the literal historical grammatical method. What that means is we're taking literally what is said. We don't believe these are uh, all, you know, allegories or stories that we're supposed to just take, you know, and read and and fancifully. But they really are the words of God. And so they're, they're literally, we need to understand what they say. We use a historical Perspective. We want to know what the history was happening, the, the historical situation, the context, the setting, as the person God used, in this case the Apostle Paul, as he wrote, what was going on around him. And then we also go with a grammatical approach, which means we look at the very words, the sentence structure, we want to understand what's being said here. Now our reason for all that is that we just want to know what the original meaning was. What did the author mean what was he trying to communicate? Because that's what we, we believe the truth is, okay? And so it's a little bit of a, can be a little complex, takes a little work, but in that, one of the things I want to note from this passage, okay, from Paul, is he's writing this, uh, this, this word on respecting government, the role of government. What we need to understand is that is uh, an idealistic perspective. That is overall how to understand the role of government. But Paul, at the very time he's writing this, okay, very time he's writing this, He is living in rebellion against the Roman Empire. He was promoting and pushing an illegal religion in the following of Jesus. It was called the way. So at the very time he says, this is our perspective on government. This is how it works. This is what it's supposed to do. He also was under orders from God. Okay, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, struck him blind and and converted him to begin to pursue and to push this, uh, this religion, in a sense, or this following, okay? And so God had given direction <laughs> to rebel against the Roman Empire and to promote the movement of Jesus. All right, so we need to understand all this as we take into context and, and consider what is being said here, what is meant specifically, 
when the rubber hits the road. Paul was ultimately killed by the Roman Empire because of his disobedience, right? Okay, so for us, we understand our posture towards government is to be respectful, it's to listen, it's to pay our taxes, it's to submit to authority. However, there are times <laughs> and there are instances specifically where we are asked to obey God rather than man and to push our government and our governance in the right direction. And there's a number of reasons we're going to say that, and we'll see it today. But George Washington, even one of the founders of our country, said that good politic or government requires two pillars to hold it up for it to be effective. One is faith or belief, okay? And the other is morality. Those two pillars are what hold up government. And it's not hard to see in our country, in our world, as those things decline, which they have over the years, that our governance becomes corrupt and it begins to work against us and it begins to be damaged and it ultimately cannot hold up under the weight of what the pressure that is put on it. God, in other words, expects it to reflect and submit to him. And so governance should do that. Governments have been instituted by God, but that doesn't mean they don't get out of whack. It doesn't mean they get out of line. It doesn't mean at times they need to be pushed in the right direction. And certainly in our country, we have the freedom and responsibility to do that because of the the way our country was set up. Um, Our country was set up with the idea of freedom and liberty, specifically uh, oriented towards uh, faith and religion. That was what our founders wanted. They did not want government to be involved in and controlling and speaking to the church. In fact, they came from England where they had King James who controlled religion and government. It was all mixed together. So they came here, they separated those things, but the goal was and the ideal was that government was set up by uh, and subject to God um, and it, it would fuel and allow for the exhibit and the practice of belief and faith. Ronald Reagan said the Constitution was never meant to prevent people from praying. It, its declared purpose was to protect their freedom to pray. John Adams says liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have a right to it derived from our maker. But if we had not, our fathers have earned it, or earned and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasure, and their blood. There were those, and I think we're all called to this at times, to understand what it is that we are Um, representing and fighting for when it comes to our politic and our government. And so we need to understand that what the scriptures teach us and we need to push in that direction. Though our, our, through our country's history, a fear of and a respect for God has been integral part of what it means to be an American. All right. Our founding documents, God made it into almost all of them. There's a reason for that, because again, the founders, though not wanting to establish a religious governance, they wanted a governance that was subject to God. See, what our founders understood and what the scriptures teach us is that God is sovereign, not the state. All right, God is sovereign over all. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 says this, Now if you will obey me, God speaking, and keep my covenant... You will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. Speaking of the nation of Israel. Then he says this, for all the earth belongs to me. All the earth belongs to me. See, everything in the earth, when we read the scriptures and we gain a biblical worldview, we see that and we believe that God is the one who created it all. So it all belongs to him. 
and it's subject to him. And any governance must, just like all of us, submit itself to his sovereign leadership and control. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation and the seas and built, built it on the ocean's depths. God is the one who created. Again, that, that uh, belief, that view, obviously challenged and has been challenged. If we look at the history of our country, it's part of the reason as we've moved away from God that that has been challenged even in court and, and culturally. There's been a move to not believe, move away from the belief in that. But Hebrews 11 confirms to us that if we are followers of Jesus, we believe what the Bible says, and salvation through Jesus comes to us through the Scriptures. So if that part is true, then it's all true. And so we understand from Hebrews 11 that the universe was formed at God's command. God spoke, and what is material, the material world that we enjoy, including ourselves, our bodies, and everything in this material world, came to be from nothing. God spoke us into existence. We came from him. And so certainly what the devil has tried to do, as he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, is to get us to question the truth of God. And the world around us has been masterful, and the devil's been masterful at chipping away at that belief. And just like the young man I saw uh, making fun of people who would believe the story of Noah, right? That happens to all of us all the time. We live in a world where what we believe is, is increasingly mocked and put down. And I especially want young people to know that the intelligence in this world is solely in the camp of those who believe there is a God and who see the world as having been created by a God. That is where the intelligence is. And people that challenge that would want to make fun of that and make ridicule for a belief in that. They simply the Bible says without the, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, and that is the very truth of it. So when it comes to the governance that is being uh, recommended and promoted in our culture in increasing fashion, which namely is socialism, this word's thrown around and the idea it's come up even in some of our elections, being pushed in that direction, socialism Okay, comes from, the family of origin is Marxism and communism. And I grew up with the Soviet Union in place. And I actually got to go to Romania on a missions trip in 1999. And uh, Romania had a revolution out of the control of communism in 1989. And they expressed to me, some of the, some of the believers there that had been led to Christ by the missionary we supported, expressed the, the, what communism had done to their culture. And how it had ripped the life from them and stolen the soul from them. Because you see, communism, which leads to socialism, it's the root, always puts the state as sovereign. The state is at the top. The state is the ultimate. And in every instance that it's been put in place in this world, religion has been eliminated or neutered, the belief in God. And that's because Marx, who was one of the founders, Marxism, who led to communism, his belief was, yes, the state should be sovereign, and secondly, that religion is opiate of the masses. And so he saw it as a negative. And so the elimination of those things leads to a godless governance. And we got to know that. Um, it, it, that's the reality. And so I'd encourage you to look into that. Any movement from a government standpoint, that wants to eliminate God is going to be problematic for us as Christians, and we should push 
away from it or push our governance away from that and towards a surrender and a submission to the sovereignty of God. Well, the Bible, in the Bible, a governance always submits to God's authority, what we see in the scriptures. And a moral code comes from God himself. And so these two things, the, the, the governance that God establishes, was that me? No, I, think I took my phone off. Okay, just making sure you're all awake, obviously. Maybe God is texting. No, okay, so anyway. Uh, the governance that comes from the scriptures, okay, and the moral code always does this. It always allows for, promotes, and encourages personal property rights. Personal property rights. You may not have thought about this, but we're going to see that socialism, Marxism, communism actually has a position on this. It's not biblical. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. In the laws, it's being given to the nation of Israel. This is one of the laws couched in the middle. It says this, you must not... Steal. You must not steal. Okay, so on its face, that's just a rule about taking your neighbor's stuff, right? Don't take anything that's not yours. But if you step back a minute, look a little deeper from a Bible study and adult perspective on this, what is the implication of it? The implication is that you have stuff, and I have stuff, (laughs) that you own things, and I own things. And this becomes actually very essential, right, to the makeup of the world from God's economy. Do you know as God established the nation of Israel that each family was given land that was to remain in their family forever? And if they lost that land, if they'd made a bad decision, if they they fell on hard times, if somebody died and they weren't able to, to keep it in the family, every 50 years there was a rule of jubilee and that land would go back to the family. And the reason for that is there was never more than one generation where that land, that ability to provide, to have ownership, And to make an income and to provide for yourself and your offspring. It always returned back to the family. God was very serious about this. See, this issue of property rights and being able to have ownership is essential. It's at the core of what God says. We also have an example in scripture of government taking personal property unlawfully. In the book of 1 Kings, uh, this is after the nation of Israel, after uh, they, they told God they wanted a king, right? And God said, you don't need a king. Let me be your leader. I'll lead you with love and truth. And you don't need a king. And they said, no, 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 we need a king, God. We want a king. All our neighbors have kings. Kings are bright and shiny and they're cool. We want one. You know, give us a king. And so God said, fine, you know, all right. And so he gave him a king. And we know the story of a few of those kings. Um, The first one wasn't so good. The second one got a little better. Um, But those kings went up and down and back and forth in terms of their respect for God. But we find in 1 Kings chapter 21, or verse, or yeah, chapter 20, uh, 21, a story of the nation of Israel when a king by the name of Ahab was in power. And Ahab had brought in as his queen, a queen, a wicked woman, a godless woman, who led the nation to worship uh, 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 demons through the practice of ba- Baal or Baal worship. Um, but uh, Jezebel was her name. So Ahab and Jezebel are ruling the nation. Well, one day, uh, King Ahab was out surveying his land and his property, and he saw a vineyard that, that uh, bordered up next to his property. And this vineyard was or, owned by a man na- by the name of Naboth. Now, Naboth owned this vineyard. Well, Ahab went to Naboth and said, hey, I'd like your vineyard. Would you sell it to me, or would you trade it with me for another piece of property? You know, it's beautiful. It's right where I want it to be. I'm the king. You know, how about if we work out a deal? And uh, Naboth re- replied... Um, 
to Ahab's request saying something um, pretty interesting. He said, listen, I can't sell this to you. He said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. He said, listen, God has given my family this land. See, this came from God. It didn't come from people. And so I can't trade it away. I can't sell it to you. That would be an abomination. It would be to disrespect what God has entrusted to me so that I can provide for my family. Well, King Ahab uh, didn't like that answer. He went home, complained to his wicked, evil wife, Jezebel. She had to plan to have Ahab killed. And she pulled it off. He was killed. And then Ahab went and claimed the land. And if you'll read the story, the curse that is brought on Ahab by God because of this abomination of stealing land from a person that God had given it to, uh, his judgment is harsh. And God, uh, he, it, it's pretty ugly um, what happens to Ahab, all right? And, uh, and it's because of, uh, because of God's um, punishment on him for this action and behavior. The confiscation of personal property was wicked in the Bible, and it was protected against by God for his people. 1 Timothy 5.8 goes on to say why it matters that we have the ability to provide. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such, pe- such people are worse than unbelievers. What's written into the scriptures is a responsibility for family and to provide. Well, we can't do that if we don't have the ability to have material possessions and provision and the ability to generate that. And so the scriptures teach us and show for us a model of personal property and ownership and the ability to protect that and to, uh, for it to remain with us. And so a family can provide. Under socialism, you'll see Marxism, communism, the elimination of personal property, or at the very least, the ab, uh, um, taking it, confiscating it, uh, to then divvy it out to many is uh, at the very least what happens. And this, of course, goes against what the scriptures teach, you know. Um, and so it's important to note these things and to dig in a little deeper and to see what is the model of politic. And it does matter because if we establish a politic and a governance that goes against what God says, we're going to pay the price for that. The last piece I want us to look at in terms of uh, what the Bible has to say about this and this particular direction of politics. I've heard it said when I was younger, certainly, some people would say, well, wait a minute, socialism is good. You know, the intention is good. It's trying to make it even. So everyone's cared for and everyone has enough. And so uh, it sounds like a good idea. And they, they, people say, yeah, and even in the Bible in Genesis, or excuse me, in Acts chapter two, the early church, well, they lived out a socialist system. Just look at it. The truth is though, that generosity in the Bible is never forced. Acts chapter 2, let's look at this passage of the early church a little bit and see what was going on here. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. 
See, this early group of believers was passionate. They'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. They were on a movement. God was moving. They were excited, and they just wanted to be connected. They wanted to spend time together, and they wanted to share in providing for each other. And so they would sell property, and they would sell things they had. They would pool their cash, and the apostles would divvy it out to meet people's needs so they could live in, in this in, environment. And so it's pretty exciting. It, it is something that's interesting and kind of unique in the Bible. Here's what's important to note about this. And this is an important distinction. What they lived by was not uh, being forced to give up their stuff, right, and contribute it to the whole. But they lived by a principle that biblically we call generosity. And generosity, as I said, in the Bible is never forced. It's never coerced. It might even be commanded where God said to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you need to give 10%, okay? But it was not forced. You didn't, you didn't get a bill from the priest, so you got to pay this, right? And so, uh, and so generosity, some things that it's not, which is the biblical principle of caring for others, generosity is not being taxed or forced to give up your money by the government or anybody else in order to help others. Generosity is by choice choosing to help. One of the problems in a free society, as we've said, is what is required is a moral code that says to me, that if someone's in need and somebody needs help, I need to reach out to do that. I need to be generous to help them. You know, churches having a benevolence fund like we do here. People give every month to our benevolence fund and we help people in need. That's important, right? It should be done. We should be incredibly generous. And really, if you look at the nature of this country, what's been done through a free country to help the rest of the world, we are incredibly generous. But not being forced to do it. And the truth is that under... Communism, Marxism, socialism, um, you're forced, you're taxed, what you earn, you really only you give it all. Government gets it all and they give you back a little bit, or at the very least, they take a, a large portion of what you have to redistribute it. And that just simply goes against what we see in the Bible. It's not what the early church was doing. Listen, we're called to be good citizens, good citizens of our country, and this really is the emphasis of Romans 12, the first passage I read about what it means to live under governance. We're to be good citizens, and, and we strive to do so. What that is not saying, however, it's not saying it's wrong to rebel against a tyrannical government or a government that's moving away from what God says to do, an adherence to that, and a submission to God's authority. We have a responsibility to try to push our country, even our governance, in the right direction. That's what it means to be responsible people and responsible citizens. Secondly, it's not wrong to set up a God-honoring government. That's not wrong. It's right and appropriate to set up a governance. And as the people here, you know, this country was set up, we are the governance. I know it doesn't look like that a lot of times anymore. But the truth is, that's how things were established here. The responsibility lies with us. It's not wrong to legislate biblical morality. I've heard a lot of people over the years say, we can't legislate morality. Nobody should legislate, legislate morality. Well, the truth is, every, whoever's in power, they're going to legislate morality. <laughs> There's no way around that. It's going to happen. It's like, what, are, what, what morality is it going to be? Is it going to be God-honoring or is it not going to be? And I even know some Christians struggle with the idea that God's, uh, the laws in Scripture and the, the direction in Scripture is good. It's the best. But I'm going to tell you it's the best for everyone. Now, does everybody get what they want? No. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? It's not always good to get what you want. Sometimes getting what, I, what we want destroys us. And so it's not wrong to legislate that and to push for that um, with our ability as citizens. And it's not wrong to work 
to influence our government towards our values and beliefs. This is what it means to be a good citizen. I think sometimes as Christians we feel like uh, we don't want to be a part of that. It seems kind of nasty and a lot of conflict and a lot of argument, and that's true. It can be. But the truth is that we're called to engage. You know, my prayer is, as I've considered this and I consider my own life in light of our situation as a country, we've been through these seasons before. I believe God is still at work. And he still is going to work through us. And what is required for us to really make a difference in our country is not just to vote for the right person, though that's a big part of it. It's important. But what really matters in our country is that we return as a people to God. And the way that happens is when I get serious about my relationship with Jesus and I go to him and I get right with him and I begin to live in a renewed, passionate way for him. See, that's what changes things, because then that changes me. And then I begin to influence my family and the people around me. And so really the answer to our country is not just changing the big picture. It really is changing me. And that's going to result in you changing and all of us changing. And that's how our country has been and will be influenced in the right direction. I know as you look at the history of our country, there's been times of revival and renewal, and we desperately need one of those. Can I tell you that that starts right here, <laughs> and, it, and it starts in your seat, and that's where it starts. And so my prayer is that we would take seriously the call of God to follow him, to put him first, that we would consider the scripture's instruction when it comes to politic and governance, that we would collectively as the church, the people of Jesus in this country, push towards what is right and push our country in the right direction. But it starts with me, right? And it starts with you. God, thanks for your call on us to be your people. You have set us apart. You've called us out to be different. And Father, we find ourselves at times, we just feel like fish out of water. We live in a world that so, is so different than us and seems to be going in so many different directions that don't honor you and we don't believe in. And it can get overwhelming. But Father, really the answer is, as it's always been, that I get right with you, that I pursue you above all else. And really you've asked me um, to put that first. And so I pray that for each of us, that we might find our passion for you again, our love for you again, that our hearts would return to you, Father. And we do pray that you would use us to move our country in the right direction. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.